First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Brexit has become a culture war of the kind that is much more familiar from the kind of American experience of guns and abortion then somehow become lined up with Republican and Democrat rather than people's political identities being so much about economics and now it's increasingly based around values. And now The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm going to do something very risky for my opening monologue today, which is to try and give you some sense of what's going on in Italy. But of course, that changes every day. And I'm recording this a good number of days before the episode is released. So probably by the time you're hearing this, it has all turned out to be wrong. But here are the basics. About a year and a half ago, different populist parties, including the far-right League and the Five Star Movement, which has its political roots on the left, took about two-thirds of a vote in the Italian elections. The Five Star Movement and the League ended up forming a kind of ideologically strange coalition, which seemed to demonstrate at the time that being a populist is a more important political marker than whether you are on the left or the right that populists can work surprisingly well together across ideological differences because they are united in an enmity to some of the institutions of the current order and liberal democracy more broadly. Now, despite predictions of the imminent collapse of the government that accompanied it all the way through, and despite predictions particularly that voters would get sick of the far-right League, these two parties have mostly kept their support. The only thing that happened, as it tends to happen, is that Matteo Salvini, the leader of the far-right league, has rapidly risen in popularity, while the ideologically more mushy five-star movement has lost a lot of its support. So, mostly for strategic reasons, at this point, Matteo Salvini has decided to make the governing coalition collapse because all of the opinion polls seem to indicate that new elections would see him becoming the prime minister. Well, there's a lot of maneuvering going on and it looks as though the Five Star Movement may wind up forming a government with the center-left Democratic Party, the Partito Democratico. It is very unclear whether they will succeed in doing so. It is very unclear whether that government will end up being stable over time. But one way or the other, it is now the league that sets the tone of Italian politics. And to me, that is one lesson to those people who say that we need left-wing populism in order to deal with right-wing populism. What happened, even in many traditionally left-wing regions like Tuscany, which I know very well, is that many of the people who used to vote for left-wing parties like the Partito Democratico went over to the Five Star Movement. And when the Five Star Movement went into a coalition with the League, 
they continued to migrate further on to the Lega Nord, which took about 50% in vast stretches of Tuscany in these past European elections. In short, left-wing populism is not likely to be a realistic way of fighting right-wing populism. And it is now the right-wing populists who are in charge of Italian politics, even if Five Stars and the PD managed to form a temporary blocking coalition in the coming days. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Helen Lewis. Helen is one of the best-known British journalists. She used to be the deputy editor of The New Statesman, and she is now a staff writer at The Atlantic, where I'm also a contributing editor. We had a conversation about Boris Johnson, about Brexit, about the future of populism in British and European politics, as well as a conversation about her forthcoming book, which is called Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, a book I particularly enjoyed because it is taking seriously the ways in which some groups like women are oppressed at the moment while remaining optimistic that some of those injustices can be redressed through the values and institutions of liberal democracy. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Helen. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start off with understanding where Britain is at at this moment. You've been reporting heroically on the ins and outs of Brexit for the last couple of years. And one of the really striking things about that is that for everything seems to change every day. Not that much has changed two years in. The one obvious difference is that we now have a new prime minister in Britain, uh, Boris Johnson. Help me understand this. He's sometimes described as a populist in the vein of Donald Trump. There are certain obvious similarities. On the other hand, he also has been the mayor of London, in which he ruled in a reasonably socially liberal way. It would be hard to rule London in a different way. He certainly does not have deep roots on the far right. How should people outside of Britain understand and make sense of Boris Johnson? I think he has to be seen a bit as a product of the British and particularly English class system. You know, this is somebody who went to the one school, Eton, that is kind of the one kind of grooming ground for future leaders. I can't remember how many prime ministers of the 20th century went to Eton, but it's half a dozen pretty much. It's an insanely high amount, but was there, I believe, on a scholarship. So his family are not incredibly posh in the way that David Cameron, his predecessor, but ones were, you know, he's a slightly Aravist character. And that's kind of interesting because there is a slight uneasiness. And I think he always wears his learning extremely heavily, right? So he's always saying that, mm. you know, he loves Homer and he loves Shakespeare. He was supposed to be writing a book on Shakespeare, which has now been put on hold, <laughs> thankfully, uh, while he's prime minister. And he wrote a book on Winston Churchill. He's very much into the idea of the kind of great man theory of history. This was very much how his Churchill book was written. You know, that Britain you know, looked to a single man who, yes, had some personal flaws and had made some bad decisions in the end, but only this man could kind of bring the country together and defeat the Nazis. And I think there's a certain kind of, and I could be that man for, for 2019 kind of feeling about him. Hmm. In terms of his, you know, I think this, the signature Boris Johnson fact is the way that he, you know, he was an opinion columnist for a really long time. So he made his name as a reporter in Brussels for the Times, where he kind of peddled a lot of that now, what is very embedded in 
Britain kind of Euro mythology about, you know, Europe won't let us have bendy bananas or it's insisting on condom sizes that are too small or, you know, all this kind of stuff about meddling bureaucrats, you know, that they won't let us have the right light bulbs. That He was deeply involved in the, the creation of that perception of the European Union as a sort of meddlesome bureaucrat that was telling the brave British bulldog what to do. And then he became a, an opinion columnist for the Telegraph, um, editor of the Spectator magazine. And the signature fact, I think, about him that kind of cracks open his character is the fact that he wrote two columns about the uh, European referendum, one backing Remain and one backing Leave. And he says now, you know, he was just doing it as a rhetorical exercise to see what the best argument against, you know, his own position was. But everybody believes that he took that decision tactically because that's where the Tory grassroots were. The expectation is that that side would lose, but they would be the kind of, you know, the ones who were in sort of betrayed. And that would be how he would kind of come to power after the referendum had been won by Remain. And Neville was slightly surprised when Leave won. But um, I think that is probably the best insight I can kind of give you into his character. You know, he's, he's very reckless. Yeah, so I have a little potted theory of British politics and arts and letters, which has to do with precisely these two columns. I mean, it is so remarkable that he set out to write the case for staying in the EU and for leaving the EU, and then clearly decided that the case for leaving the EU was more fun, more interesting, had more panache. And this is my little side theory. I feel like that goes back to the British grading system, and especially at Oxbridge, which is obviously very influential on all of the ruling elite of a country, in which a good, well-argued, slightly boring and worthy essay, which would earn you an A at most American universities, including the best ones, is a high to one, which is something that people look at slightly derisively. It's sort of a little earnest, but certainly not brilliant. And what you aim for is the first, the best grade. And in order to do that, you have to argue something counterintuitive. You have to display some brilliance. You have to deviate from the common wisdom. And when you look at something like how Boris came to advocate for leaving the EU, it seems to be exactly that. But I guess that raises the broader question, right, which is that a lot of the populists who are now in power around the world, not all of them, but a lot of them, seem to be true believers. I mean, I think Viktor Orban believes in what he paddles. Kaczynski in Poland believes fanatically in what he paddles. And in certain ways, that's true of Donald Trump as well, I think. I mean, when you go back to the interviews he gave in the 80s, he's obsessed with the threat in trade that Japan poses. Even though he's changed his mind about a bunch of important things, I think there are actually more ideological consistencies in his life than people recognize, including obviously the deeply racialized politics mm. around Central Park's five and so on. With Boris Johnson, that doesn't seem to be the case. He was the embodiment of liberal Toryism, a progressive mayor in certain ways when he was mayor of London. Now he is playing an authoritarian populist in certain respects. I guess my question is, is that heartening or is that concerning? I mean, is that a reason to think you know what, he might change his mind again and he won't go through the hard Brexit, he's not going to pander to anti-immigrant forces in Britain? Or does that mean, well, he'll be willing to pander to whichever way the wind blows? And actually, at the moment, because the biggest threat to his rule is probably from the success of a Brexit party recently, that means he's going to drive a hard right line and probably go for no deal Brexit. Yes, bless your optimism. I think I would agree with you that he's not a deep ideologue in the way that, as you say, even Trump has got some incredibly deep-seated prejudices which kind of come out and have translation now into sort of policy terms. And I remember when 
Boris Johnson was mayor of London, you know, I would go to events held for kind of city guys and he would stand up and say, you know, no one wants to defend the banking industry, but, you know, I will. Like it was this kind of incredibly heretical thing to do for a conservative politician to kind of stick up for financial services and business. It's kind of more fascinating to see that he's now come around to the idea that big business are actually sort of out of touch elite. The reason that I find that disheartening is because, as you say, the wind is blowing so much in the direction and particularly in the constituencies that he needs to keep the support of towards populism, towards xenophobia. Throughout the Tory leadership contest, you know, he said, we are going to leave on October the 31st, you know, do or die. Whereas Jeremy Hunt, who was the last man standing against him, kind of was slightly softer, said, well, we know we might actually have to seek an extension if we don't get it all sorted out. So everything is pushing him in that direction. You know, added to which he has surrounded himself with people who are true blue ideologues. So his chief strategist, Dominic Cummings, believes in Brexit and has done for a really long time, both as a kind of recapturing of sovereignty and as also as a means to an end to remake Whitehall and the British bureaucratic regime. He's obsessed with the idea of the sort of slowness and uselessness of the civil service and, you know, wants a kind of big shock. It's like disaster capitalism, but it's kind of disaster bureaucracy that he can then kind of make all these big kind of sweeping changes. So I think what Boris Johnson believes is ultimately irrelevant. He was elected by a very small part of the Tory party, you know, membership, a couple of hundred thousand people who are mustard keen on Brexit. And he surrounded himself with most of the people who were in the vote leave, the official pro-Brexit campaign in 2016. And, you know, that's how he sees himself maintaining a grip on power with this kind of great man theory of history, that if he can be the one that pushes through Brexit. I think it's a really interesting calculation. People keep talking about, you know, is he the only man that could basically rat on Brexiteers and and they would kind of think that he's sufficiently one of them that he could get some weird version of Theresa May's deal past them. I think it's a very dangerous game to play to invoke the idea that no deal isn't actually that bad a way of leaving the EU and actually we'd be fine with it and you know we've got to show the Europeans that we're willing to do it because it removes your ability to argue that there's any problems with no deal and that's what Hmm. the weird normalization of no deal that I've seen in the last 18 months of British politics has been fascinating you know what government could recover from that shipping can make or break a sale so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation they make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Yeah, so, I mean, it seems to me, uh, first of all, that no deal, from my vantage point, is reasonably likely at this point. And everybody who's made predictions about Brexit has turned out to be wrong. <laughs> but I would say that there's, there's at least a 50% chance of it, in part because, as you're saying, Boris Johnson is opportunistic. The biggest threat to his ability to win the next election probably comes from a splitting of the Tory party vote with the Brexit party. And the one surefire way of rendering the Brexit party entirely toothless is to deliver a no-deal Brexit. But I'd love for you to explain what you just alluded to, which is the normalization of the idea of a no-deal Brexit over the last 18 months, and more broadly, what seems to be a complete shift in what Brexit means. So as I understood it at the time of a referendum in 2016, most Brexiteers 
were arguing that Britain might very well stay part of a single market, the big sort of trade zone and regulatory zone within the EU. Mm -hmm. And all of them said that they would obviously have if not a membership in the single market, then a very thick trading relationship with Europe, an immediate trading deal, and so on and so forth. So how is it that what seemed like a reasonably hard Brexit in 2016, which is to say leaving the single market but having, for example, a Norway-style relationship with the rest of the EU, uh, which is to say a very thick trading and regulatory alignment, has now come to look like a betrayal of Brexit, and the only true Brexit suddenly is leaving the EU without a deal or on very, very loose terms. How did that shift happen? I find this question absolutely fascinating, and I wrote about it in The Atlantic this week, because it's down to a couple of different factors. The first of which is, as Dominic Cummings, the chief strategist for Vote Leave, wrote in a blog in 2015, it was impossible to come up with an idea of what Leave looked like that would unite the various different Eurosceptic groups. You know, There are some people who voted to leave the EU because they wanted to end freedom of movement. They were anti-immigration. They thought that was too high. There were some people who voted Leave because they wanted to leave the customs union, wanted us to strike trade deals with the EU. There were some people who just wanted to give the establishment a kick. There were some people who believed the vote leave message that we would get more money back. We were paying all this money to Brussels. And the famous slogan on the bus, you know, we're about getting £350 million a week that we were sending to Brussels. We could spend it on the NHS. And so hmm. he wrote in this blog, you know, well, actually, the best thing to do is swerve the question entirely. And they didn't precisely do that. They did say, Michael Gove, who was one of the leading Brexiteers, did say during the campaign, actually, we should leave the single market because then we can end freedom of movement. But beyond that, it was very nebulous. The customer Union was very rarely mentioned. And one of the things that is really notable is that actually Brexit was driven particularly by older voters who are notoriously very resistant to change, right? It's very hard to get them to hmm. vote for radical propositions. David Runciman, the Cambridge professor, has got this kind of great thing about the way that older societies now, he doesn't think could ever really slip back into fascism because older people don't do street violence and protests, right? <laughs> and I think that that's, so there's an interesting analogue there with what did the EU vote look like that it made it so popular with over 60s? Well, you can argue that it looked like going back to what we had before, you know, take back control. Britain was fine outside the EU, so actually all we're doing is just going back in time again. And then that seems kind of nostalgic and comforting rather than you know, radical and disruptive. You know, there's a quote by David Davis that's something like, you know, there'll be no downsides, only considerable upsides. And therefore, arguing for these sort of Norway plus type deals was a way of kind of saying, you know, this happened. There's a quote from Daniel Hannan from 2016, where he says something like, of course, you know, EU nationals would never be kicked out of the country. So what they needed to do was make, you know, de-radicalise the idea of Brexit. And then, unfortunately, once the vote had happened, if you want to do all the things that the Brexiteers wanted Brexit to do, then actually that the logic of that drives you up towards a harder and harder Brexit. So I guess one question to ask is, was this inevitable in 2016? Or was it a matter of how the politics played out, right? So the political scientist in me would say, you know, if we run this a hundred times, does it come out the way it did every time? I mean, another way of putting it is, you know, how much does this have to do with particular decisions that Theresa May made early in her premiership? And how much does it have to do with a quite abject failure of Labour under Jeremy Corbyn to provide a key counter vision. I mean, Labour's policy seems to have been to be as ambiguous as possible for as long as possible. And if they had said very clearly a few weeks after the referendum, all right, look, here's what we think should happen now. Here's what our relationship with the European Union should be like, whether it is 
trying to revoke Brexit or perhaps more realistically having a particular account of a close relationship with the EU and pushing for that loudly and providing that counter-narrative, would that have tethered the debate to sort of what Brexiteers originally meant by Brexit in a way that would have stopped it from radicalizing itself? Or, as you seem to be implying in the last thing you said, is the logic of Brexit just that once you're severing those ties, in order to have any of the benefits, you actually do need to have a really hard Brexit. And so we would have ended up radicalizing in this way, no matter who was in number 10 and no matter who was the leader of the opposition. It's a really good question. I think probably it starts further back even than you described in terms of setting you know, on those rails, because Jeremy Corbyn did not put his heart and soul into campaigning for Remain. And, you know, this was a very unpopular thing to say in 2016. And people on the left would say, well, you're only saying that because you hate Jeremy Corbyn and you're a Blairite and blah, blah, blah. But Jeremy Corbyn voted to leave the EU in 1975 in that referendum. He's a lifelong instinctive Brexiteer. You know, Seamus Milne, his close advisors, described the kind of European elite club. And I think there was a feeling as well after the Scottish independence referendum at 2014, was won by Labour really putting its you know, heart and soul into unionism and losing almost all of its Scottish seats immediately afterwards to the SNP, the Scottish Nationalists, in subsequent election. So I think there was a feeling that there would be a huge cost for Labour in really campaigning hard for Remain and also campaigning alongside a Conservative government whose official position of the Prime Minister was Remain. And Jeremy Corbyn was unwilling to spend political capital on that when it was not a cause that he particularly cared to support anyway, but also would have had a big cost for Labour to pay it. So that's where I think that starts. And then, as you say, that policy of ambiguity ever afterwards is an attempt to maintain that. It's an attempt to keep together Labour's electoral coalition between a lot of its seats across the Midlands and the north of England, where there are a lot of Leave voters. And now it's incredibly strong in the cities like London and Bristol and Manchester, you know, and which have also remain voting. So I think that was, to some extent, it was inevitable. I also think it was inevitable because of the way that the um, question was framed. I had this conversation a lot with my colleague Stephen Bush at The New Statesman. And you know, he's very clear about saying that referendums don't work unless the government supports the change proposition. So you look at Scotland in 2014, the SNP puts out Scotland's future, a white paper, a big, thick book. You know, you could kill a fairly large spider with it that are its plans for an independent Scotland. Now, you can pick those apart, but it, you know, that was a thorough piece of well-evidenced work that ran to you know several hundred pages. The repeal the eighth referendum on abortion legislation in Ireland, which I covered, again, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, had the white paper ready to go about saying, well, actually, I will allow abortion up to 12 weeks if this constitutional change happens. And it meant that when people voted for change, or not, as the case may be, they knew exactly what the two options looked like. They knew what the status quo looked like, and they knew what the change looked like. And that did not happen in the EU referendum at all. Yeah, that seems to be the core problem of a referendum. You know, I, I have some concerns about referenda in general, but I think they can be perfectly legitimate when it's an issue that isn't incredibly technically complex, in which people have clear moral views, and in which each alternative is clearly set out. The problem with the Brexit referendum was that it had a relatively clear alternative on one end, which is, you know, continued British membership in the EU with some moderate changes, 
bit relatively obvious what that world would look like because it's very close to the world in which we were already in. Mm. And then on the other end of the option set, it had make your own Brexit. <laughs> you know, you could believe whatever you wanted about what would happen afterwards. And that, I think, both favors the other side because it means that people can project their wishes onto it, but also then creates a situation where if people choose that option, there is a real democratic mandate to leave the European Union, and I do take that seriously, but it isn't actually a mandate to do any particular thing, right? Because there are so many different things that might mean that you're sort of forced into one of a lot of different options, but there's no democratic way to constrain which of those options uh, Britain should actually take. And I agree that that is a flaw that was present from the very beginning. Explain for us, and I don't want to get too deep into that, <laughs> what's going on with Northern Ireland and what's going on with a backstop? This is something that is invoked like some kind of incantation <laughs> in the British public debate. Even in American right. papers, I see continual references to the Irish backstop in ways that make me think that 98% uh, of the readers of those articles and quite possibly the journalists writing them don't actually know what it is. So why has Northern Ireland come to be at the heart of this debate? And what in particular is this ongoing controversy over the backstop? So the backstop is essentially an insurance policy. It says if in the transition period you don't agree a new comprehensive trading agreement, then what will happen is that the UK will stay in regulatory alignment with the EU until that happens. Originally, it was a Northern Ireland only backstop and then is now UK wide. And it was designed to avoid there needing to be a hard border across the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And that's a particularly fraught question because the absence of a border was essentially guaranteed by the Good Friday peace process in the 1990s. And that is an area that has been marked by sectarian political violence. So the stakes are incredibly high. And peace on Ireland has been largely achieved by the fact that, you know, many people People have both British and Irish passports. Effectively, now you can walk across someone's garden and essentially be crossing the border. So, so I guess the simplest way of putting this is simply that the incredibly emotionally deep and fraught question of whether Northern Ireland should be part of the Republic of Ireland or part of the United Kingdom becomes a lot less relevant if both Ireland and the United Kingdom are members of the EU. So you yeah. have free movement between those places, you have free trade between those places, you actually don't usually have passport controls within the British and Irish islands, though you do between Britain and the rest of the EU at the moment. And so it takes a lot of a sting out of that question. Mm. And so if Britain, which includes Northern Ireland, now wants to have a really hard border with the rest of the EU because they want to be able to have less regulation and make its own kind of trading decisions and so on and so forth, it suddenly imposes this hard border in the middle of the island of Ireland and suddenly the whole independence movement takes on this completely different energy. Is, is that the idea? Yeah, and then this is where the kind of fluke of history comes back into it, because in 2017, Theresa May, then the Prime Minister, called an election when she had a very small majority and promptly lost that majority and now can only pass her budgets and confidence motions by relying on the support of the Protestant Party in Northern Ireland, the DUP. And what they want least of all, you know, what everybody suspects is if the Conservatives had a whopping great majority, you know, a kind of Tony Blair first term style, 
over 100 majority, they would have just said, sorry, Northern Ireland, you know, bye bye. But we're going to put customs checks at ports on the island of Ireland and you'll be part of a kind of customs area. But because that is totally unacceptable to the DUP, that has never been an option. And that's one of the things that has led to that problem being essentially completely insoluble for now month after month after month. Let me put this the other way around. So let's say that the DUP vanishes, you know, Boris Johnson calls an election, it gets a crushing majority. What's the solution then? I mean, so I guess the solution would be that you do end up imposing a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Oh, you put the border in the Irish Sea. So you either upset one or the other group in Northern Ireland, and then you take the view, which is unfortunately a correct view, that most people in the rest of Britain don't really care about Northern Ireland, haven't been to Northern Ireland, don't feel a huge connection with it. There's not a huge representation of Northern Irish voices in the media because the media is so heavily based in London. And you kind of go, sorry, Northern Ireland, but you know some things have to be sacrificed on the glorious altar of Brexit. Uh, Okay, so the option set is either you have a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the island of Ireland, Mm -hmm. which quite possibly reignites a civil war or at least serious amounts of violence. Or you say, no, no, we want to avoid that. So we basically sacrifice Northern Ireland and put the border in the Irish Sea, which is to say, allow Northern Ireland to trade on the terms of the rest of the European Union, have a soft border, no border to the rest of the Republic of Ireland. But isn't the official name of the governing party in Britain the Conservative and Unionist Party? And hasn't it been the deepest part of the identity of the Tories for many centuries to want to preserve the Union? And I've seen in some recent polls that a majority of Brexiteers now say they are happy to accept Irish independence or even Scottish independence if that is the price to pay for leaving the EU. But but that seems remarkable to me. Yeah, you're right to think that's remarkable because it is remarkable. It is also true. And one of the biggest stories of the last couple of years to me has been the remaking of the Conservative Party in a way that I think a lot of right wing parties have been remade. You know, we talked a lot about the hollowing out of the left in Europe and the kind of decline of social democracy and the rise of kind of populist left wing parties in Spain and Greece and elsewhere. But we're now kind of beginning to reckon with the decline of the kind of institutions of conservatives as people who want to conserve the past and actually the rise of a radical right that wants to kind of sort of smash things up and refigure things. So you're exactly right. Boris Johnson has appointed himself Minister of the Union. He's sort of given himself a a random made-up title to kind of try and offset the fear that this is, (laughs) you know, something that he's willing to do. But as you say, all the evidence that we have, polling evidence from Conservative members, say they go, you know, let it go. And the Conservative Party is so deeply an English party now. It's got a very competent leader in Scotland in in Ruth Davison, but its identity and its membership base is very now very heavily English. You know, so here's where I start to really worry about the future of Britain. And I, I wonder what you think about that, because if the issue of Britain's relationship to the European Union had been at the absolute forefront of British politics for 40 years, and people are now saying, we're just willing to make any sacrifice for that because it, it has always just been the most important issue. That would concern me about how exactly Brexit plays out. But it wouldn't concern me about the long-term future of British politics because I would say, well, once you deal with that, then perhaps you're sorted. But what's remarkable is that in a poll in 2010, asked what the most important issues facing the country are, 0.5% of respondents said Britain's relationship to the European Union. 
But how many said immigration? I think that's the key question. Well, quite a lot. And those two things are obviously connected. Yeah. But of course, the problem is that you don't actually entirely deal with a problem of immigration by dealing with the EU. And it seems to me that when you ask people's opinions of different immigrant groups, they have, in many cases, more negative views of immigration from uh, Bangladesh or Pakistan, for example, mm. than they do of immigration from Romania or Bulgaria. So the case I'm trying to make, and, and tell me if you think I'm off, <laughs> is that there is a rising populist energy in Britain, there is a rising anger against elites, there is a rising willingness to smash a system that works, in my mind, quite well in certain ways, but certainly has not worked very well in other ways, apart. And Brexit, for whatever complicated set of reasons, has become uh, the defining issue which provides an outlet for that energy. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, if somehow Boris Johnson ends up being the heroic prime minister he imagines in his own mind, finding a wonderful solution to Brexit, it works way better than anybody expects, all of which seems unlikely to me, and Brexit goes away as a political issue. Doesn't all of that populist energy... Doesn't all of that anger, doesn't all of that willingness to, to smash up some of the status quo just flow into issues like migration and this time migration from non-European countries? Doesn't it flow into attitudes towards non-white people who are already in the country? Doesn't it flow towards a whole host of other issues at that point? No, I mean, and this is what I find very worrying about. You know, I come from the centre-left, which is now a very unfashionable place to be from, because the same thing as a radicalisation on the on the left as well. And I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is firmly the most left-wing leader the Labour Party has had in 30 years, and actually also the only one who's pursued a policy that is as anti-migration as his 2017 manifesto for Labour, which said they would sign up to ending freedom of movement. So I think that you're entirely right to say that Brexit has become a culture war of the kind that is much more familiar from the kind of American experience of guns and abortion then somehow become lined up with Republican and Democrat, rather than people's political identities being so much about economics. You know, Britain through the 19th, 20th century had a very class-based political idea. It was based around economics, and now it's increasingly based around value. So, you know, Labour, founded as the party of the working class, now does extremely well in quite leafy, you know, towns and cities. The Brexit party does very well in old Labour working class places that been kind of hollowed out from deindustrialization. The Tories are now always a middle class party. You know, there's now a kind of Brexiteer Tory dominance in that party. And the kind of moderate Remainers might actually be now going to the Liberal Democrats. There's a kind of interesting half realignment going on British politics. I say half realignment because first past the post is a, a system that really mitigates against new parties rising up and has so far kept Nigel Farage, a very successful political leader by other measures, out of the House of Commons. And, you you know, it worries me we now have a Home Secretary in Priti Patel, you know, who is on record as saying that she supports the death penalty. And that is an extreme position in terms of the House of Commons. It's not one in terms of the country. I think it's just under 50% of people in Britain support bringing back the death penalty. But that is not someone you would have expected to see in a cabinet in the last 20 years or so. But it is a values judgment, right, is that she's both an extremely right wing in her economic policy, but also she has this, you know, subscribes to this set of Brexiteer values. Things like, is it racist to sell gollywogs? Yes or no? Is it kind of, you know, would you, do you recycle? All these sort of weird questions that now you could probably tot up on one side of the Brexit, you know, remain, leave, divide or the other. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the remarkable political realignment that's going on throughout the Western world at this point, where, you know, if you would have wanted to guess which political party somebody votes for in America or in Britain or in Germany or in Sweden 30 or 40 years ago, you would probably have asked them a question about public policy. You'd probably have asked them a question along the lines of, you know, would you rather pay somewhat higher taxes in order to have a more generous welfare state? Or would you rather pay fewer taxes, but accept some cuts to public services? Something along those lines. Mm. And that would have reasonably accurately predicted whether you end up voting for Labour, the German Social Democratic Party, the, Dem mm. the Democrats, uh, or on the other hand, the Conservatives, the Republican Party, the sort of Swedish so-called moderate party. Today, I think a pollster would be much more likely to ask about immigration, for example, to say, you know, on, on the whole, do you think immigrants bring more benefits than harms to the country or the other way around? Or, mm. you know, should we increase or decrease the number of immigrants our country takes in? And the answer to that question would correlate quite strongly with uh, which side of the political spectrum you're on now. And, and what strikes me about a lot of social democratic parties in Europe, including the Labour Party, is that they don't seem to have understood the transition entirely yet. They are desperately trying to hold on to two sides of their coalition, which they could hold together under the old regime, which was sort of proletarian workers in less affluent towns and industrial towns on the one hand, and the sort of educated middle class that often relies on the state for employment uh, on the other hand. So uh, teachers, civil servants, uh, mm. artists, and so on. On economic issues, the interests of those two are reasonably close to each other. On cultural issues, they're very, very far apart. So when the cultural axis becomes dominant in politics, it just becomes very hard to keep together Islington, which happens to be the constituency of Jeremy Corbyn, and some of the working class constituencies in the north of England, which used to be the most reliable Labour votes even 20 years ago. Mm. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And But it's also, it's a kind of fascinating lesson on the right as well, because the Conservative Party is now facing the problem that it is leaking seats both to the Brexit Party. And I think you mentioned earlier, you know, they need to accomplish Brexit in order to sort of see off that threat, but also to the Liberal Democrats in some of their other seats, maybe in sort of the southwest of England, for example. So both Labour and the Conservatives, these two huge, you know, hegemonic parties that have between them won every election since when did the Liberals collapse? Yeah, the beginning of the 20th century. They're bleeding away on both sides. It's not obvious what strategy they should take to try and keep all of their voters. At some point, one of them might decide that they just need to make the full leap across the aisle and just go to be a full cultural you know, party. And it'll be interesting to see if either of them ever do that. And is there a reward for moving first or is there a downside to that? And perhaps in a certain kind of way, that is what Boris Johnson is doing. For in other ways, he seems to be trying to signal relatively liberal policies. And instinctively, as a former mayor of London, perhaps he is quite liberal on certain issues. So, Well, I, I think his marital history suggests he's, uh, he's quite socially liberal. Yeah. I mean, I think personally he is. And, you know, he's all of his friends, I imagine, would be social liberals. But, you know, the things that he's been talking about since taking office, you know, he's been talking about that sort of tough on crime, you know, bang up more criminals. That is classic, what we'd kind of think of as Daily Mail playbook, classic populist right playbook. You know, everybody in the entire criminal justice system in Britain thinks there is no point putting people in prison, leaving them to moulder there, not giving them any educational training, then chucking them out 
poor and no more educated than they were when they came in and expecting that will mysteriously solve crime. And that doesn't stop that section of the populist right saying, yeah, but the solution is to crime is we just need to bang up more criminals. I'm sure his personal instincts are not in that direction, but the playbook he is using is a very well-worn one. Yeah, I've had trouble understanding exactly which direction he's going in on those things. You know, one thing that he did that Theresa May had not done is that on his first day in office, he said, look, European citizens who are already in Britain are obviously welcome to stay and we want them to. And he has actually started an initiative to bring in more high school immigration, if I understand, to Britain. So sort of on certain things, he seems to be deviating from the Daily Mail playbook. And then in other ways, he is incarnating this sort of populist riot. But this is more like the Trump playbook, right? Because you have Priti Patel, who's the Home Secretary, saying, look, if there's no transition deal, then we're kicking everybody out. You know, all of the, those arrangements are ending on October the 31st at the stroke of midnight, which is something that Trump has also done incredibly well, right? Which is just say a lot of different and inconsistent things. There was this really interesting thing, I think, by the writer of Weapons of Mass Disruption, who compared him to kind of algorithm that just does iterative versions of messages and sees where they land, but also looks in different directions to different constituencies. So is this a pro or anti-immigration government? Well, you've got the Home Secretary who's responsible, ultimately, for immigration numbers, saying one thing, and the Prime Minister saying another. And because we've got this mad political system at the moment where no one really knows what's happening, and is it all a negotiating strategy? It's very hard for the press to hold them to account on that, in the same way that Donald Trump will often say one thing and do another, or say one thing in the morning and another thing in the afternoon. It's very hard to actually work out. You have to actually look at policies, I think, in order to try and work out beyond this kind of noise, basically, that politicians can generate. So you said something interesting earlier, which is you place yourself on the centre-left, and you're one of the loudest centre-left voices in British public life at the moment, which can be a lonely place, as too it can be in the United States. You just wrote a book that's not out yet called Difficult Women, and it's an elaboration and defense of feminism. And I found it to be very interesting in two ways. First of all, I, I learned a lot about feminism and about feminist history and about uh, unvarnished feminist history in mm. some of the episodes that often are presented in a more varnished way. And I, I enjoyed that tremendously. But I also was wondering whether it's a kind of role model in, uh, speaking of culture wars, the most heated culture war we have at the moment, which is a way of defending a politics that looks out for the interests of historically oppressed groups, but while furthering liberal principles rather than positioning yourself in opposition to liberal principles. So tell us a little bit about sort of what feminism means to you and what feminism means to you as somebody who's very self-consciously and very publicly on the centre-left, as opposed <laughs> to a conservative or as opposed to somebody who's a member of a far-left. Right. So, I mean, my feeling is about the fact that in order to have equality for men and women, you need to have support from the state, particularly in care, unpaid caring labour. Because at the moment, I see it as this kind of absolutely fearsome bung, you know, cooking the books of capitalism, that you have this billions of pounds of unpaid work done primarily by women in order to produce the workers of the future. And it's sort of an extraordinary phenomenon to me. And it happens at the expense of those women's life opportunities, career opportunities opportunities, financial security often, you know, nine out of 10 single parents are women. So when we look back through the history, you know, and this book is very much about Britain, things like, you know, what started off as family allowance, absolutely extraordinary to read about the battles that happened there. That came about originally the 
arguments about it. And then it came about in the late 1940s. It was presented as a paper and it was, you know, in various forms throughout the latter decades of the 20th century. Because at the start, people in the 70s particularly wanted to put it into the, you know, they wanted to put it in the pay packets of men because at that point, most couples, the man was the main wage earner. And Barbara Castle, the Labour politician, says, you know, it needs to go in the purse, not in the wallet. It needs to go to the primary carer who is usually a woman. And what that did was a pretty radical thing, which I think they managed to disguise some of the radicalism of it at the time, which is just as well, which was it really readjusted the power relationships between heterosexual couples with children. Because if you own Hmm. all the wealth in a family, then your word is law. You can impoverish the other person in that relationship if they don't do what you want, frankly. You know, you can beat them up and they can't leave. You know, you can drink the wages and come home and there's nothing to eat on the table and there's nothing that your other half can do about that. And if you read some of those kind of misery memoirs, as whatever you want to call them, from the early 20th century, that is a kind of recurrent complaint about women who can't leave, who don't have any power, who are trapped at home with no money and no influence. And actually, the way that the benefit system developed in the later half of the 20th century helped women be able to leave abusive relationships and help them to have some measure of financial and therefore personal independence. And it kind of slightly annoys me is that I think any women's politics gets kind of downgraded to being kind of very secondary. But in terms of kind of radically rewiring how capitalism works, I think that is a kind of an extraordinary thing to have done. And it doesn't really kind of get that much credit. And I can see why at the time you would Hmm. want to not present it as a particularly radical thing. But I think looking back on it, it becomes astonishing to me. The situation of a woman with children in the 1900s versus one now in terms of participation in the labour force. And it's one that I find very worrying because you see the rise of pro-natalist politics, you know, across Russia, across Eastern Europe. Israel has long been a very, you know, natalist for its Jewish residents. And it kind of gets bound in now to far-right politics. The Christchurch shooter, his manifesto began, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, about this idea that, you know, Muslim-majority countries have much higher birth rates. And there's this idea that they will kind of come and replace white Europe and dominate it. So once again, you're seeing the way in which women's freedom, in this case, women's sexual and reproductive freedom, is framed as something that's dangerous and actually a threat to the kind of fabric of society. So it annoys me when people see feminism as sort of distinct from real politics, like it's the kind of, you know, sort of soft GCSE. It's the kind of art history versus a maths or a science because it's so wrapped into, you know, far right politics now is so about capturing a particular kind of male anger and male fear and trying to exploit that. And being anti-feminist is one of it. And you only have to look back to the 30s to see the way that liberated women and gay people and Jewish people were presented as, you know, together as sort of decadence. That was sort of Western decadence. And some of that, I feel that level of that discourse coming through in, in ways that people talk about feminism now. I suppose one of the main dividing lines I see when we talk about issues like feminism, but also other, in certain respects, identity movements, is whether it comes from a place of relative optimism that says that we've actually advanced quite far in the last 50 or 100 years, uh, which often, not always, but often results in a relatively optimistic set of uh, solutions about how to go, which is to say that uh, they can still entail a lot of righteous anger about the ways in which our reality falls short. They often entail a lot of quite far-reaching suggestions about how we can improve those things. 
but they don't usually end up saying we need to abolish capitalism. They don't usually end up saying the principles of liberal democracy are actually the reasons for the oppression. They think that realizing the principles of liberal democracy more fully is part of the solution. And against that, I think there's a tradition within feminism and again other identity movements that says no, despite appearances we haven't made any real progress, the problem is the system itself, when you think of something like white supremacy, it is actually the values of bourgeois society, the values of liberal democracy that are themselves white supremacist in various ways. And so we have to sort of abolish the system. You seem to me, and I may be misreading you, to be very much in the former camp of this. So why, as we recognize the ways in which our reality is unjust, should we trust this political system and the values that motivate it to be able to do better by women? Why are you in this camp rather than that more radical camp? Rather than the smash it all up camp? It's a really interesting question because it is simply impossible to argue that feminism has not made any progress. You know, next year when the book comes out, it will be 150 years exactly since women were admitted to the university for the first time in Britain. And actually now girls make up the majority of of undergraduates in Britain. They make up the majority of medical students. The advances that women have made are extraordinary. 1919 was when it was abolished that women, the bar into the professions, so to become lawyers and doctors, they were, you know, they kind of legally couldn't practice law before then, sit on juries, for example. Obviously, first women got the vote in 1918 and then all women in, in 1928. Even as recently as the 70s, this was extraordinary to me, there were things like single women not being granted a, a mortgage on a house or women who wanted to have a hysterectomy, having to seek their husband's permission first. Rape in marriage in Britain was only made illegal in 1991. Until that time, it was considered if you'd married someone, then you by default had consented to all and any sex with them. So these things, I think they're kind of mind-bending to younger feminists. And they were certainly quite quite mind-bending to me when I realised quite how recent some of this stuff is. So feminism has done an enormous amount in order to advance its goals throughout the 20th century. I think there is probably a point at which you say that there's only so much that you can do within, you know, a system in which waged labour not only gives you kind of economic independence, but also an identity and a sort of structure to your life. Because it's really interesting to look at the 70s when so many more women entered the workforce. So Ali Hoschild, who wrote the second shift about women who were doing one shift at, you know, at work, having entered the workforce and another unpaid shift of work at home, noticed that they were like urbanising peasants. So this other kind of great movement of the 20th century of, of people moving into cities, you know, something that you can see in China now, for example, and actually people becoming much less tied to a place and gaining an economic independence. But, you know, ending up putting up with both in the case of kind of urbanizing peasants and in the case of women in the workforce some pretty horrible conditions and low pay and discrimination but not wanting to give that up because of the economic freedom that it entailed and i think that is a kind of hard limit of capitalism is it only finds a way to value productivity in a very kind of narrow way and that has got its hard limits but i'm not a communist although really fascinating that i again really enjoyed about researching this book is friedrich engels in particular wrote really interestingly about the family and the economic of patriarchy, really. So the Marxist tradition has given a huge amount of intellectual ballast to feminism. Yeah, I suppose what I really enjoyed about your book and what I recommend to listeners about it is that it does provide a model of how we can take seriously the injustices of this moment and seriously the reasons that various identity groups, in this particular case women, have to be angry and to be upset and to demand 
redress and to demand redress as the title of your book suggests, not politely, but even if it means in this often derogatory phrase being difficult. Mm. And yet recognizing the progress we've made and the potential for perfectibility within our system, for potential not to become perfect, but to become better than we are at the moment. And I found that both quite optimistic in comparison to a lot of the things I read and hear these days, and a lot more likely to come to fruition. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that because I often don't feel very optimistic. But I think one of the great things about studying history or reading history or writing a history is the recognition that people have been through some pretty awful things and actually have prospered nonetheless, have fought, and that the struggle in itself is kind of not necessarily ennobling, but, you know, it is a life worth living to try and make things better. And that's what I feel a lot about a lot of the women. <laughs> As I say, it's called difficult women because a lot of them are quite, I guess, unpleasant or there's a lot of infighting. You know, lots of them are real kind of headbangers or quite difficult to be around. But nonetheless, there is a feeling of kind of accomplishment from doing politics. And that's something that, you know, I feel very strongly. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write about politics and become a political journalist is that that is a worthwhile moral thing to do is the pursuit of politics as making people's lives better. And it's one of the reasons that I find Brexit as a subject to cover so unbelievably sort of stultifying and innovating is that I don't think it is making anyone's lives any better. I don't think it's even doing the things that it promised to the people who voted for it. I don't think it's going to give them any of the things that they wanted necessarily. And therefore, it is this kind of ludicrous long-term jolly to go off on that's going to cost billions of pounds and you can't get any attention for, you know, I'm very interested in prison policy, any of these kind of other policy areas, because there's this huge ticking countdown clock. And you mentioned earlier about the idea that, you know, Boris Johnson will do Brexit and then it'll be over. I mean, I think that the one thing it will never be is is over. We will constantly right. be renegotiating that relationship. It's going to suck all the oxygen out of British politics for a long time to come. So this is actually the question that I wanted to end this conversation with, which is not, you know, what are your guesses as to the different forms that Brexit might take, because everybody is guessing about that, and I feel like nobody actually knows the answer. But but when do you think the topic of Britain's relationship to the European Union is going to cease dominating British politics? How many more years will it take until that is not item one on the agenda? I mean, look at America. You know, when will the topic of abortion stop being something that dominates politics that all political candidates have to kind of take a stand on that is endlessly contested when a kind of policy or set of policies becomes enmeshed in a debate over values and one which people feel extremely keenly you know there are people buying kind of berets with european union stars on there are people comparing people they don't like to nazis you know it is incredibly deeply felt now and wrapped up with all this other stuff about you know do you think that we're just uneducated and provincial and thick and that's why we voted Brexit versus, you know, do you think that we're elitist, lefty, lovies because, you know, um, why can't people understand the simple economic case on the other side? I think that what Brexit has brought to the surface, whether or not it takes the form of those words anymore, that values debate is with politics for an extraordinarily long time to come. Well, I'm glad that we've uh, gotten back to comfortably pessimistic terrain <laughs> at the very end of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Helen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally... 
Please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.